Before we begin, just a brief disclaimer. We at ParCast do not support the beliefs of white supremacists. Although we'll be looking through the point of view of these assassins throughout the episode, we thoroughly condemn their actions and their hateful rhetoric. On November 6, 1979, radio personality Alan Berg hosted his controversial call-in show on Denver's KGMC. Although food and drinks were banned in the recording booth, Berg sipped a mug of coffee and smoked a cigarette. He wasn't the sort to follow the rules. He destroyed so many microphones already, the studio had suspended his microphone from the ceiling so there would be no way for him to spill coffee on it. That day, Berg was in a heated discussion with a caller who felt the district attorney showed preferential treatment to the local Jewish community. Berg, who'd faced anti-Semitism his whole life, shouted the caller down. He even taunted him, saying, come on down here. To Berg, these shouting matches were just part of the job. He didn't even realize the caller was Fred Wilkins, head of Denver's chapter of the KKK. One week later, a door swung open during Berg's live broadcast. The intruder pointed a gun at his head and said, I'm Fred Wilkins, you will die. His words were broadcast live to all of Berg's listeners. Berg walked away from that encounter uninjured, but shaken. However, the next time a white supremacist group targeted him, he wouldn't be so lucky. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on provocative radio host, Alan Berg, who was killed by members of a militant white supremacist group known as The Order. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. In 1983, David Lane worked as a security guard for a newspaper called the Primrose and Cattleman's Gazette. Lane loved his job. He got along well with his boss. He believed in the message the paper was spreading. He'd even written an article that was published, The Death of the White Race. The newspaper was a platform for people like Lane, that is, white supremacists who believed a race war was imminent. And just three weeks after Lane started his new job, it looked like they were about to get a publicity boost. The paper's owner, Roderick Elliott, was invited to an interview with radio host Alan Berg. But the interview didn't go as planned. When Elliott called into the show on June 15, 1983, Alan Berg publicly insulted him for the full duration of the interview. He called him crazy, an anti-Semite, and a racist. Finally, Berg said, quote, Everything you have said is a lie. You have no facts. Then hung up on Elliot before he could reply. After that disastrous radio appearance, several advertisers pulled out of the Primrose and Cattlemen's Gazette. The loss of revenue led to layoffs, and less than a week later, 
David Lane lost his job. Lane was furious. He'd always believed that a Jewish conspiracy ruled the world, and this seemed to confirm it. When David Lane's white supremacist group started planning the assassinations of prominent Jewish figures, he had the perfect idea for their first target. From 1981 until his death in 1984, Allen Berg used his Denver radio shows to challenge racists, white supremacists, and anti-Semites. He regularly invited the leaders of hate groups onto his show, only to cut their mics to prevent them from defending themselves on air. His bold broadcasts led to numerous death threats and a face-to-face confrontation with the head of the local chapter of the KKK. In 1984, he was killed by a white supremacist group called The Order. The assassination can't be attributed to any single individual. But in this and the next episode, we're going to focus on two key members, Bruce Pierce, who physically shot Berg, and David Lane, who drove the getaway car. To understand what would drive these men to commit an assassination, we have to start with their pasts. Bruce Pierce was born on May 14, 1954, in Frankfort, Kentucky. Bruce had always loved the outdoors, and as a teenager, he longed to get out of the city and live in the countryside, surrounded by trees and nature. Just a few months before his high school graduation, his girlfriend Elizabeth got pregnant. So instead of donning his cap and gown, he dropped out and married her on April 1st, 1972. Bruce and his new wife moved to Atlanta, but he still dreamed of living in the rugged country out west. After he and Elizabeth divorced in 1981, 26-year-old Bruce Pierce finally made his dreams a reality and moved to Montana. But the reality of rugged life in the West didn't live up to the dream. He soon remarried and had a second child, but they struggled to make ends meet. And while he loved the beautiful scenery the West offered, Pierce was deeply lonely without any family or friends around. About a year after Pierce moved to Montana, he met a man named Mike Butler. They became fast friends. After a while, Butler invited Pierce and his wife Julie to join his Bible study group. As it turned out, Mike Butler adhered to an anti-Semitic ideology known as Christian identity. Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center explains, Christian identity is a theology. It's not a group. It's practiced by perhaps 50 or 60,000 people in this country and, in fact, has produced a string of murderers, of people who have, uh, you know, tortured children, who've blown up buildings, uh, and really just a remarkable bevy of crimes. Identity, in short, believes that Jews are literally the children of Satan, uh, that whites are the real chosen people, not Jews, and that blacks and other people of color are uh, soulless mud people, quote-unquote. Pierce had never given much thought to Christianity or white supremacy, but in spite of the hateful rhetoric they adopted, Mike Butler and his friends were always warm and welcoming to Bruce and Julie Pierce. The Pierces had been looking for a community, and they'd found it. Julie was actually the more fervent supporter of the two. She claimed to have had a prophetic dream in which God revealed to her that they were on the right path to preserve the white race. She encouraged her husband to get more involved with the church. So less than a year later, in 1983, the family moved to Idaho to become more active in the white supremacist movement 
they even enrolled their children in a Christian identity school with a white supremacist curriculum. The deeper 29-year-old Bruce Pierce got involved, the more white supremacists he met. He made friends with 30-year-old Robert Matthews and 44-year-old David Lane, both members of the neo-Nazi National Alliance. Let's turn our focus for a moment to David Lane. After his father died when he was only four years old, Lane was adopted by a traveling Lutheran minister. He spent his early years traveling around the Midwest. For whatever reason, the young Lane was obsessed with Adolf Hitler, in the same way Bruce Pierce had been obsessed with the outdoors. He always wanted to play the Nazi stormtrooper when he and his foster brothers reenacted World War II. The family eventually settled in Colorado, where Lane stayed throughout his young adulthood. His first job after high school was as a real estate broker, but he was fired for refusing to sell houses to black customers. Between 1978 and 1983, Lane dabbled in several white supremacist movements, including the KKK and Christian Identity, where he met Robert Matthews and Bruce Pierce. It was a meeting that would change history. The 80s were a fortuitous time for white supremacists. In 1988, the KKK reported its largest following ever, with 15,000 members plus 150,000 casual rally attendees. Hate groups found a valuable recruitment tool in a novel called The Turner Diaries. The plot follows a group of white heroes who overthrow a Jewish cabal that rules the world. When Robert Matthews read The Turner Diaries, it resonated with his own beliefs. He wanted to be that hero, bringing down the vast Jewish conspiracy. To that end, on September 9, 1983, he invited some of his Christian identity friends over for dinner. It was a fairly normal dinner party. But when dinner concluded, nine men, including Matthews, Bruce Pierce, and David Lane, retreated to the backyard for some fresh air. There, Matthews presented a six-step plan that would culminate in founding a whites-only nation. Step one, form a group. The nine of them would be the core members. Step two was to set goals, which he'd already done by setting out this six-step plan. He'd gotten a bit ahead of himself on that one. Step three was to finance their operation. Matthews modeled his plan on the plot of the Turner Diaries, counterfeiting and stealing the money his group needed for the next three steps. Step four, recruit more members. Step five, assassinate highly placed enemies. And step six, raise an army that would overthrow the U.S. government. After Matthews presented his plan, he asked that each of his friends give a loyalty oath. Because they were fighting for the future of the white race, the oath had to be sworn over a white baby who represented the coming white generations. Luckily, one of the men, Kenneth Loff, had a six-week-old daughter. Kenneth ran inside to grab his baby while the other men laid out a blanket and surrounded it with candles. Kenneth put his baby girl on the blanket. The men stood in a circle over her as Matthews led them in a loyalty oath. They swore to secrecy, and Matthews swore as their leader that he would defend and fight for his men. Bruce Pierce knew that his days of loneliness were over. From this moment on, he was truly bound to Matthews, Lane, and their white supremacist community. Coming up, 
we'll look at the Order's plan for assassination and their target, Alan Berg. Now, back to the story. With steps one and two completed, it was on to step three, fund their operations. Robert Matthews authorized the other men to counterfeit cash and to steal large sums of money. David Lane was put in charge of the counterfeiting operation. Nobody involved with the order had any experience with counterfeiting money, including David Lane, and the bills weren't convincing. They weren't even the right shade of green. But the order forged ahead with their plan to pass the counterfeits off as real U.S. currency. In December 1983, Bruce Pierce and other members of the order took their counterfeit cash to a shopping mall. Their plan was to make small purchases using large bills, gaining real money in change from the fake $50 bills. The men split up. Bruce Pierce went to Radio Shack where he tried to make a purchase, but the cashier easily recognized the cash as fake. Pierce hurried out of the store. He thought he'd escaped. He still had plenty of cash, both real and counterfeit. He'd try at another store. But after he left the store, he noticed a security guard following him. He didn't want to be arrested, but more importantly, he didn't want to lead the guard to his new friends in the order. Pierce played casual, walking through the mall, darting from store to store. Each time he passed by a fellow member of the order, he'd quietly warn them not to acknowledge him. The others kept walking right past him. Pierce made it outside the mall, then ducked into a seafood restaurant right next door. That's where the police caught up to him. Pierce was taken into custody and questioned by Secret Service agents, who were in charge of investigating counterfeiting cases. Even under pressure, Pierce continued to protect the order. He gave only one clue about his motive when he made an anti-Semitic comment about one of the Secret Service agents who was questioning him. That turned out to be a terrible mistake. The Secret Service agents suspected that Pierce was a member of a militant white supremacist organization, and they wanted information about his group as part of any plea deal. But Pierce refused to talk. He was given a harsh sentence of two years in prison. Pierce requested time to get his affairs in order, and the judge ordered him to return to serve his sentence by April 24, 1984. Pierce agreed. But when April 24th rolled around, Bruce Pierce didn't turn himself in. He officially became a wanted fugitive. During their spree of robberies and counterfeiting, the order started working on step four, recruit new members. The group never really succeeded at this. At its height, the order had only 22 active members. As each new member joined, Matthews provided them with a copy of the Turner Diaries and outlined his six-step plan. Some new members were uncomfortable with step five, assassinations. Matthews told them he'd abandoned that ideal. That was a lie. He and his inner circle were already talking about targets for their first assassination. Meanwhile, Bruce Pierce was teaching himself how to build bombs using manuals from the Aryan Nation. On April 29, 1984, just five days after he failed to turn himself in for his jail sentence, he decided to put one of his homemade bombs to use. That night, Pierce was on a trip to purchase weapons with another order member. He asked his friend to make a detour to a synagogue in Boise, Idaho. When they arrived, 
Pierce found a crawl space accessible from the outside of the synagogue. He crawled in and placed the bomb under the floorboards. He set a timer for half an hour and they drove away. Pierce hoped the bomb would be powerful enough to destroy the building. But when it went off 30 minutes later, it only caused minor damage. When Robert Matthews heard about the bombing, he was furious. First, he hadn't authorized the action, and second, the bombing had failed. After this and the counterfeiting fiasco, Bruce Pierce was on thin ice. The next month, the order got their first real taste of blood. Not an assassination, but a murder of one of their own. An order member named Walter West had tried to pass some counterfeit money along to his first ex-wife, Joan Hedinger, without permission. Robert Matthews wouldn't let that stand. On May 27, 1984, another order member, Randy Dewey, took Walter West on a drive. West was suspicious. He insisted on holding his rifle throughout the ride, and Dewey didn't argue. He drove west to a remote location in rural Idaho where Robert Matthews and several other order members were gathered in the woods. A little after 6 p.m., Dewey stopped the car and they got out. One of the order members approached from behind, wielding a sledgehammer. He struck West twice in the head, but didn't kill him. West shouted, what's going on here, Randy? Dewey picked up the rifle West had brought with him and shot West in the forehead, finally killing him. It was a new era for the Order. With West's murder, the Order became a deadly organization. It was almost time for step five, assassination. Let's turn our focus to the Order's eventual victim, Alan Berg. Berg was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1934. He grew up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, but his encounters with anti-Semitism shaped his childhood. He frequently clashed with his father, who worked as a dentist in wealthier Gentile neighborhoods. Berg resented his father for hiding his heritage. As Alan grew up, their relationship was strained. Berg went to law school, but his behavior was unfocused and impulsive. On one occasion, he eloped with a classmate, then received an annulment only a month later. After that, he transferred colleges numerous times, jumping around to Colorado, then Florida, and then back home to Illinois. Despite his erratic behavior, he graduated from DePaul Law School in 1957 at the age of just 23. For several years, he had a successful law career, representing those who needed it most, mafia members and sex workers. He once defended a model, Tony Lee, who'd been charged with indecent exposure after visiting a beach topless. But beginning in 1966, just nine years into his law career, an undiagnosed brain tumor caused Berg to have recurring grand mal seizures. His health struggles and stress led to depression, and Berg began to self-medicate with alcohol. Soon, he was a full-blown alcoholic. In the late 1960s, he and his wife Judith relocated to Judith's hometown of Denver, Colorado, where he attended rehab. He maintained his sobriety for the rest of his life, but the Bergs chose not to return to Chicago or to the pressures of the law. Instead, they stayed in Denver, and Alan got a job as a shoe salesman. 
Working in sales turned out to be a great fit for his energy and charisma. In 1971, he encountered a customer named Lawrence Gross, a talk show host on the local station KGMC. Gross was so impressed with Berg's conversational skills, he invited Berg to join him on air. Berg was 37 years old and had never been on the radio before, but he was a natural. In fact, he was such a natural, Gross kept inviting him back for more interview spots. Later that year, when Gross decided to relocate to San Diego, Berg was the natural choice to take over his talk show. Berg thrilled listeners with his natural charisma, but he didn't develop the abrasive attitude that would make him famous until 1977 when he moved to a new network, KHOW, and took over a slot that had previously belonged to a music show. Rock and roll fans called in to complain about the lack of music during Berg's talk show. Berg brushed off their complaints, often with insults. He learned that the more rude he was, the more listeners wanted to hear what he had to say. Those who knew Berg well agreed that, away from the microphone, he was soft-spoken, respectful, and pleasant to be around. But his abrasive persona was a large part of why he became so successful, and as his show became more popular, he only became more combative on air. Sometimes he would intentionally misrepresent his callers' opinions or misquote political leaders so that angered listeners would call in and correct him. He regularly cut his callers off or hung up on them mid-conversation. As Berg explained in an interview, I stick it to the audience and they love it. By February 23, 1981, Berg moved to KOA, the largest radio station in the Denver area. His show ran every day from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. His broadcast reached 38 states, and more than 200,000 listeners tuned in every day to hear him insult and berate callers. Berg wasn't content to let any of his callers go unchallenged, regardless of their political leanings. But his biggest trigger was anti-Semitism. Not only did he criticize hate groups, but he even sparred with common listeners who, he claimed, were complicit in hate through inaction. During one broadcast in September 1981, he said, I know there are anti-Semitic people out there among you Gentiles. I know you're listening. I want you to call me and tell me why you don't like Jews. Let's not pretend this doesn't exist. Let's stir it up. These pronouncements made Berg a threat in the eyes of numerous hate groups. He clashed on several occasions with the KKK, neo-Nazis, and adherents of the Christian identity movement. As a member of the KKK, the Aryan Nation, and the identity movement, David Lane didn't particularly enjoy Allen Berg's show. But on June 15, 1983, Lane's boss, Roderick Elliott, was being interviewed, so he and his roommate decided to listen. Roderick Elliott was a Holocaust denier, and as usual, Berg railed against claims of an international Jewish conspiracy. David Lane, of course, fully believed that a Jewish conspiracy ran the world, and over his lifetime of white supremacy, he had done extensive research to back up that belief. He called in to prove Alan Berg wrong. While the phone rang, Lane's roommate began to record the call. When Berg answered, Lane presented his case, listing several Jewish world leaders who were a part of the conspiracy. Berg didn't denounce him. Instead, he admitted that he hadn't even known many of the people Lane listed were Jewish. However, 
Berg didn't have the chance to finish that thought. David Lane hung up on him. From Berg's perspective, this was just a typical call, the sort of thing he dealt with every broadcast. It was a little rare for someone to hang up on him before he got a chance to hang up on them. But apart from that, David Lane was no different from the other dozens of callers he fielded every morning. Lane, however, believed that he'd humiliated Berg and proven that the radio host was a fraud. For weeks afterward, he would play the tape for his friends and family. But in the end, Alan Berg was the winner. Shortly after that day's broadcast, Roderick Elliott's newspaper, the Primrose and Cattleman's Gazette, folded under pressure from advertisers. David Lane lost his job. Seven months later, in January 1984, Alan Berg invited a Christian identity leader named Reverend Pete Peters to come in for an interview. Peters came armed with Bible verses and ready to debate theology, but Berg cut him off every time he tried to raise a point. At one point, Berg said, quote, you're not going to read the Bible on my show. David Lane, Robert Matthews, and Matthews' girlfriend, Zila, were all occasional attendees at Reverend Peters' church. They saw Berg's attacks on their reverend as an affront to their own beliefs and a personal attack on themselves. This was just seven months after Berg's interview with Roderick Elliott had led to David Lane losing his job. In Lane's eyes, and the eyes of the order, this was strike two. Strike three came a month later. On February 13, 1984, Berg invited white supremacist Colonel Jack Moore onto his show, solely for the purpose of embarrassing him. Throughout the broadcast, Berg mocked Moore and cut off his mic so he couldn't respond to the insults. This was a pretty typical example of Berg's interview style, but the order saw this as the last draw. They were already compiling a hit list of potential targets for their first assassination. Alan Berg had just jumped to the top of the list. Coming up, we'll take a look at the lead up to Alan Berg's death. Now, back to the story. In early 1984, leaders of the order decided the time had come to fire the first shot in the impending race war. They were ready for step five, assassination. Number one on their list was Norman Lear. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Lear was a television producer who created the show All in the Family. The order resented the way that the main character, Archie Bunker, was used to mock their white supremacist beliefs. They also had a problem with the show's positive depictions of black characters and sexually empowered women. However, the Los Angeles-based television producer was too far away from the order's Idaho headquarters. Norman Lear was crossed off the list. Number two was Morris Dees, a civil rights lawyer who'd founded the anti-racist Southern Poverty Law Center. But due to Dees' high profile and tendency to travel with security guards, the order also ruled him out as a potential target. That left number three, Alan Berg. After Berg's interview with Jack Moore in February 1984, the leader of the order, Robert Matthews, spoke with his girlfriend's mother, a woman named Jean Craig. She believed in the white supremacist cause and agreed that Berg had to be silenced. 
Gene Craig spent the spring in Denver tailing Berg and learning his habits. She took photographs of Berg coming and going from the KOA studios, his favorite restaurants, and his home. Thanks to her scouting, the order learned that Berg's home was secluded enough to be an ideal assassination location. As David Lane, Bruce Pierce, and Robert Matthews planned the assassination, Pierce fought for the right to be the man to pull the trigger. He believed that whoever initiated the revolution by killing Berg would be remembered as a hero, and he wanted the glory for himself. Matthews wasn't as ready to grant Pierce such an honor. Tensions had grown between the men after Pierce's arrest for counterfeiting and his unauthorized and totally unsuccessful synagogue bombing. After a long debate, Matthews relented and allowed Bruce Pierce to be the assassin. David Lane was chosen to be the getaway driver. On June 18, 1984, Bruce Pierce, David Lane, Robert Matthews, and another order member named Richard Scutari checked into a Motel 6 near Denver, Colorado. They had their machine guns in tow and their target planned to perfection. Alan Berg's day began in a very typical manner. His morning radio broadcast covered recent sex scandals within the Catholic Church. The Pope had recently made a statement that sex for pleasure was sinful, and Berg adopted a typically provocative stance, goading his Catholic listeners to call in and testify as to whether they'd ever enjoyed sex. At one point in his broadcast, Berg asked the audience, quote, Can you figure any way, as a man, you could have sex without pleasure? After his broadcast concluded, Berg spoke with his producers about the topic of his next episode, Gun Control. By 2 p.m., he left the KOA studios. The day was rainy and overcast. The skies rumbled with thunder. At 5.30 p.m., Berg's now ex-wife, Judith, parked a few blocks from Alan's apartment building and walked over. Over the years, Alan's repeated infidelities had led the couple to separate and reunite multiple times. That night, they were attempting to reconcile. They agreed to have dinner at a restaurant called Jefferson 440. They drove over together in Alan's car. Meanwhile, three of the aspiring assassins from the order went to Berg's apartment. David Lane drove, Robert Matthews sat in the front seat, and Bruce Pierce sat in the back. They drove slowly past Berg's building. It was 7 p.m., and Berg wasn't there. The assassins didn't know where he was or when he'd be back. Lane pulled up to a Taco John's at the end of the block to wait him out. Once the car was parked, Matthews and Pierce got out. Matthews headed toward Berg's building to scout the location. Pierce stuffed his machine gun into a tennis racket case so as not to draw attention. The night was quiet and free of witnesses. Matthews noticed a free parking spot in front of Berg's building. He headed back to the Taco John's and told them everything was exactly as they'd expected. The three men got back into the car and drove over to park right in front of the building where they'd have a better vantage point. Matthews laid out the plan. They would wait for Berg to return home, then pull up alongside him in the driveway. Working quickly, Pierce would gun him down and Lane would drive them away. A little after 9 p.m., Berg's car pulled onto the street. Bruce Pierce held his breath. His moment was about to come. The car pulled into the driveway, then stopped and idled for a minute. 
The mood in David Lane's car grew tense. Judith had wanted to come into Berg's apartment to make a few phone calls before returning home. But now she was feeling tired and she'd rather leave the calls for tomorrow. Instead, Berg backed up and drove her back to where she'd parked her car several blocks away. Pierce, Lane, and Matthews watched the car drive away out of sight. They were completely baffled. Berg was only gone for a few minutes, but it felt like an eternity. Finally, the car returned and parked in the driveway. Matthews said, quote, let him pull in, then David, pull up to the driveway, and Bruce, you take him. Alan Berg stepped out of his car with a bag of groceries. A lit cigarette dangled from his mouth. He didn't pay any attention to the car pulling up right beside him. Matthews stepped out of the car and opened the door for Pierce. Pierce was ready, gun in hand. He stepped out, strode toward Berg, and opened fire. Berg collapsed to the ground. The groceries and the still-lit cigarette fell beside him. He died instantly. This was the first time Pierce had killed anyone. He was exhilarated. Thrumming with adrenaline, Pierce jumped back into the car. He bragged, did you see that? It was like we pulled a goddamn rug out from under him the way he went down. David Lane sped away. Within seconds, Allen Berg's assassins had disappeared into the night. Allen Berg's death would be just as controversial as his life. The story of this assassination holds significance beyond Robert Matthews, David Lane, and Bruce Pierce. As the order had predicted, Step 5 would launch a new phase for militant white supremacist movements and change the shape of hate groups throughout the next several decades. We'll discuss that and more next week. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back on Monday to explore the fallout of Allen Berg's death and the manhunt for his assassins. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. See you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 